into the book of Malachi. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you. In Malachi, you'll find this passage on page 952. 952. Malachi is the very last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find the beginning of the New Testament with Matthew, then just go right before that and you'll get to Malachi. We've been in this for a few weeks. In just a minute, we'll read starting in chapter 2, verse 17. Following the end of World War II, thousands of Nazi leaders fled the country to avoid uh, prosecution. Uh, Many of them went to uh, Argentina, they went to Brazil, they went to Chile. Uh, Some actually went to Canada, some actually went to the United States. Some of those were eventually found and prosecuted, but not all. Some of the ones that were found and prosecuted would be uh, Adolf Eichmann. You might know that name if you didn't sleep through that part of history. Adolf Eichmann was the architect, really, for what they called the final solution, the attempt to eliminate all the Jewish people. He was really the designer of that. He fled to Buenos uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, and he lived for 10 years, a comfortable middle-class life, working at a Mercedes-Benz factory, before he was captured and sentenced to death in 1962. Franz Stengel was nicknamed the White Death because he always wore a a white uniform and carried a whip. He himself was responsible for perhaps 900,000 deaths at Treblinka, uh, another concentration camp, second only to Auschwitz. He was found in 1967 and extradited to West Germany. He was found guilty, sentenced to life in prison where he eventually died in prison. For those two, justice was delayed, but it came in this life. But there's countless others that in this life, justice never came. I'll give you three names there. Walter Rauf, he was responsible for the death of more than 100,000 Jewish people through mobile gas chambers. After the war was over, he fled to Chile, where he lived as the manager of a crab cannery factory um, for many, many years, living a comfortable life. He was arrested in 1962, but then released, where he lived the rest of his days until he died natural death in 1984. Laszlo Satare sent more than 15,000 Jews to uh, Auschwitz. He fled to Canada after the war, and he lived there for 50 years as an art dealer. He was discovered in 1997, but managed to flee again. He died at the age of 98 in his own home. Hans Liepisch was a guard at Auschwitz. He fled to Chicago, and he lived in Chicago for 30 years before being deported back to West Germany. Uh, But he was ruled unfit for trial, and he died at the age of 96. I want you to imagine for a moment that you were a young person in one of these concentration camps. Everybody around you dies, your whole family. You survive. And, And the people responsible for it, they lived. They lived a comfortable middle-class life, perhaps for 10 years, 20 years, perhaps the rest of their life. It'd be natural to ask the question, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? God, if you care about justice, why is this happening? Why are these people getting away with it? It's exactly what the people ask in Malachi. In fact, word for word, that's their question. They look around them. And now they're at the time of, they, they were went away in exile as a people. They came back into the land, but they're still sort of under an occupying power. They're a small remnant. There's violence and oppression all around them. They're blind to it within themselves. We've seen that throughout this book. But they're looking around them and they say, 
Where is the God of justice? He must not care. And what we find in this passage is God's answer. And he explains that justice may be delayed, but it will never be denied. He will bring justice. This answer is relevant not just to them, but to you, if you ever wrestle with these questions. If you think about these big atrocities, perhaps like like Nazi Germany, you think of hardship in your own life, perhaps there's been abuse, perhaps there's been abandonment, and it seems like nothing is done. This passage starts to answer that question as we we wonder, where is the God of justice? Let's read this. Chapter 2, starting in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This follows a pattern that we've seen a few times in this book. It begins with a claim. This claim is that you have wearied the Lord with your words. Malachi says to the people, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And you might wonder, how can God grow weary? In fact, doesn't God say that he does not grow weary? This is in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? How then can this say, the Lord is weary. He is wearied by your words. Well, Isaiah includes a description of of another time when God says he is weary. So this, within the same book, Isaiah 40, and then you go back to Isaiah 1, and he says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So what is it? Can God not become weary, or is God weary? We have to understand that this word kind of has a range of meanings. It can mean, like, physically exhausted. Like, if you have a manual labor job, and you do 10 hours, 12 hours, and you come home... And you were just exhausted and you collapse on the couch. That is weary. God never becomes weary like that. He never runs out of energy. He's never tired. We become like that, but God is different than us. But weary as it can be used here is like an expression of of anger. You can think of it on a spectrum of anger. Because what he's describing in this chapter in Isaiah 1 is that the people are doing these sacrifices, these festivals, these feasts, but... They're just living in unrepentant sin, not caring about God in their lives. And he says, why are you playing this game, doing these feasts? I am weary of them because it doesn't match their lives. Well, what about in Malachi's day? What is it that is leading to God being weary of them? 
that's their question also. In fact, that's what they ask. They say, how? How have we wearied him? This is a pattern that we've seen, and we'll see a couple more times in this book, where there's a claim, and then there's a question, and then there's the explanation. We saw it in chapter 1. God says, I have loved you. This is in verse 2 of chapter 1. And they say, how have you loved us? And he explains it. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says, you have honored me. Or you have not honored me, but you have despised my name. And they say, how have we despised your name? And he explains it. Chapter 3, verse 7, he'll say, return to me. And they'll say, how shall we return? Chapter 3, verse 8, he'll say, you are robbing me. And they'll say, how are we robbing you? So this just follows that same pattern. He says, you have wearied me. And they say, how? How have we wearied you? And it's this question that leads to God's answer. And that answer takes up the rest of our time. It's the end of chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. He's explaining why he's wearied by this question and what he's going to do about it. So the explanation goes like this. This is the summary, and we'll break it into four parts. You accuse God of ignoring evil, but God has a plan to bring justice. That's their complaint. He puts these words in their mouth. He says, you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Saying, God, you're ignoring evil. But he says, no, I've got a plan, and here's what it is. So let's look at this. This is, let's look at their complaint first. They complain, and I would say they complain to others about God. And that'll end up being, I think, a critical point in what's the problem with this. But notice, there's, there's two parts, probably, though, different ways of saying the same thing. They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. In other words, they look around at evil around them, and they see God not doing anything, and so they say, God must, he must delight in it. It's really inverting and blaming God, saying that God is doing what God himself says is wrong. And Isaiah 5, verse 20, says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And now they're saying, God, that's what you're doing. You're looking at evil and you're acting as if it's good. They're accusing God of the very thing that he says here should bring woe. But then they articulate it this way as well. Where is the God of justice? People are suffering around us. Our own people have been taken away into exile. Those that are wicked appear to be prospering. God, where, where is the God of justice? They're not alone in biblical authors and struggling with this. In fact, running throughout Scripture are, are places where people are wrestling with this question, although slightly worded different. We can, in fact, spend all morning just doing what we're about to do. I'm going to show you four verses that are examples of this, but, but we could spend the next hour just reading verses in the Bible where people are wrestling with this question. Job 21.7, why do the wicked still live? Continue on, also become very powerful. Job himself, who is suffering greatly, and he says, but, but the wicked are living. They're even becoming powerful. Why, why, why aren't they stopped? In Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 14, he says, there is futility. And futility there has the idea of vanity, worthlessness. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous I say that this, too, is futility. He says it appears to be inverted. And this verse totally does away with any concept of karma. Right? Karma says you do good, you get good, you do bad, bad comes to you. And this verse says, no, that doesn't match reality. 
I look around at reality and there's righteous men that bad stuff seems to happen and there's bad people that good stuff seems to happen. And we see that today as well. And so he says, this is futile. I don't know how to understand this. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are those who deal in treachery at ease? Say, God, I'm going to bring this case to you. This matter of justice, I'm going to bring it to you. Why has the wicked prospered? And then one more. In the book of Habakkuk, and in fact, this whole book of Habakkuk really wrestles with this question. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. How long, O Lord? I will call for help, and you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yet destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. It's the same question that the people of Malachi are wrestling with and perhaps you've wrestled with. Where is the God of justice? Why do those who do right seem to suffer and those who do wrong sometimes get away with it? That doesn't seem to match your character. Why does that weary God in this passage? I think it's because how they're going about this. God is not wearied by our asking. He's not wearied by us bringing those doubts to him. We see throughout scripture people doing that. They're bringing it to God. They're pouring out in faith saying, God, I don't understand. But what they're doing here is they're just spreading it horizontally. They're going to others about God. They're speaking about God, but not to God. They're complaining about God, but not to God. They're not wrestling in faith. They're just broadcasting this out. I think of, I think of people in our own day that are maybe influential pastors or authors or musicians that end up struggling with doubt. And you might even say deconstructing. And that's kind of a loaded term with a broad range of meanings. But, but deconstructing the faith, but then they broadcast that out. And they use this platform really to influence people with that unbelief. It's okay to process. It's okay to have doubts. It's not like we want people to just stuff those things inside. That would be wrong as well. But the problem is how people talk about it and who they talk to. Some will simply fuel those doubts. So if that's you, if that's, you're going through a period where you're just struggling with doubt, there are some people who will just fuel that. There are some places you can go online that will just fuel that, and you'll fuel it for them. Because you're not talking to God about that, you're talking about God to these others that are just going to fuel that doubt. There's others that you go to that will just shut you down and shame you for asking questions. And that's not right either. That's not going to be helpful. And we don't want to be those kind of people. We want to be the kind of people and we want to go to the kind of people that will help you push, be pushed towards truth, put good resources in your hands, that will help you bring these questions and doubts uh, to the Lord and help you resolve them. But what they're doing here is just broadcasting that out. God doesn't care about evil. Where is the God of justice? And so God answers. He's wearied by it, but he answers. And his answer goes through the rest of this. And he explains what he's going to do. He says, okay, you want to know where is the God of justice? I'm going to explain. This is what I'm going to do. And so he unfolds his plan. God will send his messenger. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. If you still have your Bibles open, I encourage you, keep them open as we go through this. 
Look at the very beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. I'm going to send my messenger. It's royal language of like a king who would send somebody on his behalf. God uses it himself of different people that he's going to send at different times. And here he says, I'm going to send my messenger. Who is this messenger? Well, just look at what it says here. I'm going to send my messenger. It's God's messenger. He will clear the way before me. Whatever he's going to do, it's going to clear the way for God himself to come. So who is this? Who would the people in Malachi's time have assumed this was? They might not have known, but we know because Jesus tells us. In the book of Matthew, chapter 11, he takes this and he applies it to John the Baptist. Matthew 11, starting in verse 7, shows he's talking about John the Baptist. He says, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, that is, John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And then in verse 10, he says, This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. So he says, this is John. So who is the messenger in Malachi 3? It's John. Unless you're going to disagree with Jesus, it's John. Okay, John the Baptist. How does he fulfill this? Well, you think, what did John the Baptist do? He came, and he came with a message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, repent. Come to your senses about your sin. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he prepared the way for Jesus by pointing to Jesus. And he says, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals on his feet. He was preparing the way for Jesus. He was clearing the way. But I want you to notice something. It was 400 years from Malachi until John the Baptist. 400 years, 10 generations would live and die waiting for this fulfillment. So that means that God's answer, as they ask the question, where is the God of justice? God's answer was not watch and see, but wait and trust. And sometimes that's our answer as well. You might be wondering, where's the God of justice? Why is this going on? And you may not see justice in your lifetime. But it's wait and trust. So he says, I'm going to send my messenger. And then he goes on. and says, the Lord will come to cleanse and to purify. There's some other figures talked about here. and There's a little bit of debate. Is this talking about the same messenger? Is this talking about others? And so I want you to, want you to keep reading here and think about who are these other figures. He says, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Is this the same figure? Lord is not necessarily Lord like God's name, Yahweh. It's, it's here. It's a different word. It's add-on. It's the word that could just be like uh, master. So, so is it God? Is it not? This other messenger, messenger of the covenant, is it the same messenger that he just talked about? Or is it a different messenger? I think it's a different messenger. And I think it's the same person as this Lord that's mentioned there. And I'll tell you why I think that. It fits the the structure of this verse, there's, there's parallelism here, parallel lines, two lines saying the same thing that help us understand. It says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. He's going to come to his temple. So whoever this is, it's going to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. 
So I think this Lord and the messenger of the covenant are one and the same. So these parallel lines tell us. And it's, it's the one who's coming to his temple. And then it's the one who is, look what it says. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? His coming, who, who can endure it? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. This does not sound like John the Baptist. This is one who's going to come to his temple and is going to purify. But it sounds a lot like Jesus. And it sounds like Jesus in both his first coming and then he'll look ahead to his second coming. Because you think about Jesus in his first coming, one of the things he does, he actually does it twice, he comes to the temple and he sees the crowds there misusing the temple and he flips over the tables and he drives them away with a whip because they're misusing this place that is to be a house of prayer and they're using it just to get rich. He's purifying his temple in that sense. And his target there is really these religious leaders, which is what it says here. He'll sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, that is, these priests, that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. I think it's Jesus who's coming. And he's, in that first coming, even, he's, he's purifying his temple. But it's not completed. His ministry there is not completed. He will come for judgment. And look at verse 5. That's the next part of this plan where they're asking, where is the God of justice? And he says, I'm going to send my messenger who's going to prepare the way. And then the Lord will come down. Jesus, the great God-man, will come down. He will purify, but then he will also come for judgment. God will draw near for judgment. And that's what we see in verse 5. He says, I will draw near to you for judgment. And be a swift witness. And he describes these whole range of sins against the sorcerers, that is like witchcraft, the occult, against the adulterers, is the, this sexual sin, against those who swear falsely, it's those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. He says, I will draw near. It's what we call the day of the Lord. It's the second coming of Christ and he comes to rescue and to judge. And this is talking about his judgment. This coming with judgment. And this judgment is described on these specific sins. Not limited to them, of course, but these as some examples. And these are things that they're seeing in their day. And they're participating at in their day. But certainly echo on. And God names them. And the very act of naming them brings attention to them. And ought to lead to repentance. But he says he'll do more than name. He will bring judgment. And it's such a range of things. It's not like on the political right or the political left. It's not like I'm avoiding this, but maybe I'm guilty of that. He describes adultery, but it also describes this. He uses the word here, the oppression of these wage earners. And that, that has the idea, there are many workers at the day, they worked that day, they got paid that night. If they didn't get paid that night, they starved that night. And so he's putting a finger on those who would oppress them and not pay them. He puts a finger on these most vulnerable of orphans and widows and those who would harm them. And he says, no, God cares about them as he cares about your sexual ethics. All those are named. And he says he will bring judgment. What, what do we do with this? So think about how to apply it. There's really two ways. And I want you to see both. 
First, we trust in God's justice. That's the question that he's answering here, right? It's not just prophecy for prophecy's sake. They're asking the question, where is the God of justice? And he says, here's my plan for justice. This one will come and prepare the way. And then the Lord will come. And then he will come again and bring judgment. And we're still awaiting that. We've experienced, and we can read about in the word this first coming, and now we're still awaiting this second coming of Christ when all that is wrong will be made right. This justice that has been delayed will not be denied. He will bring it. And it is certain. Martin Luther, a Protestant reformer of 500 years ago, he said it this way. He says, Christian ought to live, and he says of himself, I live as if there are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. What he means by that is this day, the day we're living in, the day that God has given you now, that's the day you have. You don't know what tomorrow will bring or the next one, but what we do know for certain is there will be that day day when he comes to judge. He'll come to judge and to rescue. We can trust in God's justice, but we have to be careful what we ask for there, don't we? Because if we want God to bring justice against all wickedness, then that's us too. And we will experience that as well. Which is why we need God's grace. I want you to read the way this is worded in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. This is just verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's a recognition. God, if you were to hold us to account right now for our sins, who could stand? And the implied answer is no one. So we ask, where is the God of justice? Thinking, why aren't you bringing justice against this person and this person and this person? Not realizing that if you brought justice against everybody who needs it, it would be against you and it would be against me. Because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe not in some of these atrocious ways of these uh, Nazi soldiers we read about earlier, but in ways that fall short of God's goodness in our, in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts, in ways that don't reflect God's holiness. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Not me. But the verse doesn't end there. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. How can God be just, how can he bring justice but not then punish everybody? It's because of Jesus. In Romans 3, he says he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That Jesus took that justice for my sin, for yours. He took it upon himself on the cross. And so that justice is done. It's paid for but it's paid for by a substitute for those who trust in Christ. So you trust in Christ and God's justice is fulfilled. He didn't just let people get away with it. It was poured out on Christ. But then you can receive grace. And that is our hope. That is, that is where forgiveness is found. So if you wrestle with these questions, where is the God of justice? I want you to consider God's patience towards you. He's given you time. He's given you an opportunity to hear the gospel. Gospel is this good news that you can be forgiven through faith in Christ. And he's given time for others, but he will bring justice. It may be delayed, but it's never denied.